0: I don't know if you've ever been lost in the woods. Um, if you have, it's not it's it can be a little bit scary. Another person, uh, you might say, Are we lost? And they said, No, I don't know exactly where we are. I don't know where anybody else is. There's a couple of things you gotta keep in mind when you're lost in the woods. What's what's first rule when you're lost in the woods? Sit down. Stay put. Let them find you. Wandering around in the woods is just a good Solid game of hide and seek from rescuers. Uh, Stay put. Make a shelter. Build a fire. Um, Get found and get out. The main goal of being lost in the wilderness of the woods is what—to get out alive. We find ourselves in the book of Numbers with the people of Israel deep in the wilderness, and they probably were feeling a little bit lost themselves. I want to bring you up to speed where we are historically. Maybe you. Uh, a good reminder of what's going on. The people of Israel had been delivered out of slavery from Egypt. You remember that? It was in a movie. Charlton Heston was in it. I don't know if it's me. Oh, it's my voice. My voice keeps going out. The Microphone. testing. Test. There we go. Thank you, Keith. Many, many years ago when Christian radio broadcasting was first becoming kind of a big thing. This is totally off topic, so get ready. This could go anywhere. There's a number of people really opposed to Christian broadcasting. I'm, I'm being dead serious. They were opposed to this notion that we would use the radio waves to reach the lost. Why Why would they people be opposed to that? Because the devil is the prince of the air. No, this was an argument that was made. We shouldn't be on radio because that's where Satan has his home. Well, we've proved that's absolutely true here this morning. Um, <laughs> thank you, Keith. Maybe, we never do this. Thank the sound guys for putting up with us this morning. Thank you, guys. <laughs> so, um, bear with me. The Lord had worked in the people of Israel and had drawn them out of slavery from Egypt. Israel had been in slavery to Egypt for hundreds of years, and they cried out under their uh, their their difficulty and their suffering. And God delivered them by Moses, but primarily through His own power, the plagues, uh, and and finally that final plague where the firstborn of each home died, and and God delivered Israel through the. Uh, Passover that they worshiped God through a, a trusting that he would pass pass over their homes because they they obeyed him and because of the blood on the doorpost the angel of death passed over their homes and they left and in fact they they left with Egypt and the Egyptians gave them their gold and their jewelry and their and their money so they plundered Egypt on their way out. Then Egypt pursued Israel and was going to destroy them, and God led them through the middle of the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea and took over a million people across the Red Sea on dry land. And then as Egypt and his, uh, the Pharaoh and his military got into the midst of the Red Sea, it closed in on them, and Moses' sister Miriam wrote that famous song, the horse and rider have fallen into the sea. And now Israel is in the wilderness, and God has promised them that he is going to take them uh, from the wilderness to the promised land. And this is where we pick up the story in Numbers chapter 9. They're in the wilderness, and they have put together the tabernacle. And in an amazing and powerful way, God was visibly present. I mean, what would it be like in church if every time we came here there was a smoke, smoking column of uh, of cloud above the church. And then at night when we would go home, it was, there was a, a column of fire above the church. I mean, wouldn't that be exciting? I, I think it would be. And, and God's physical appearance was with the people of God in the wilderness. He would descend onto the tabernacle and He would descend uh, and, and be with His people. And then when it was time to move along God's a presence, the cloud would lift from the tabernacle, and then he would, he would move out, and everybody would have to pack up their bags. I don't know if you paid attention, what would happen is sometimes He would linger over the tabernacle for weeks, months, maybe even years. Some days He would be there just the night. All the dads are going, are you serious? Hey, who's pitched a tent in the dark at camp? You get there, and the kids are a lot of help, aren't they? Um, you pitch it, you get it set up, everything's the way you like it, and come out the next morning, the clouds going away, and you're going, are you serious? All right, pack it up, here we go. And then you pack up and get everything the way you like it, and maybe every day you go check, in, and a year goes by, you stay in this, in this one place. And the Bible describes this journey, this wilderness journey, uh, of them obeying and following the Lord everywhere he led. At the end of the, the book, Moses lists out all of the places they stopped, this was a wandering is a is a generous term for what they were doing. There was no some days they were real close to the promised land and then a, a little while later all of a sudden they're back by the Red Sea again. Looping around with no a rhyme or reason. So I've entitled the message today given what Israel was doing and what God was up to God in the wilderness. God in the wilderness. first thing we want to talk about, we've already touched on a little bit, but in the wilderness, for the people of Israel, God in the wilderness, they had the appearance of God, the physical uh, presence, appearance of God, and He took uh, two forms. He, he, during the daytime He was a cloud, and at night He was a, a pillar of fire. Uh, really the idea here is the cloud provides protection during the day, and the, and the fire provides uh, a guidance and warmth at night. There's a couple of passages about God that I think are really helpful to think about, ones you may be familiar with, in Deuteronomy 6, we read this. This is what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, verse 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10, I'm going to read verses 10, 11, and 12 of Deuteronomy 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, when He brings you to this land, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, verse 12, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So when they were in Egypt, in the land of slavery, did they remember the Lord? Yes, they did. The Bible says they cried out to the Lord, and He heard them. So they were thinking of the Lord when they were in the land of slavery and bondage. They said, God, hear us. God, hear us. Lord, show up. Did they remember the Lord in the wilderness? Hard to miss, a giant pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. He's saying, listen, uh, in the wilderness, they followed him. And, they, and when he left, they followed him. And when he stopped, they followed him and stopped. But he says, where is the place where they might forget him? When they get to the promised land and they've got nice homes and nice cities and a nice vineyard and a, an olive grove. I mean, all of us dream of having a really nice grove of olives Of course, for them, that would be really, really important to have. We can just go to the store and buy nice olive oil, whatever kind of oil you prefer. They would need it for making their necessities, their bread. He says, When you get there and you're sitting in your couch and you've got food and bread and drink and a home uh, over your head, water coming from a well you didn't even have to dig, be careful. Don't forget. Don't forget the Lord. What did the Lord want them to do for him and not forgetting? This is really, really important. And this may be the most important I say, the thing I say this morning. Look with me back at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He wants them to remember him, but not merely remember him. Maybe I can put it this way. God is saying, when you get there, I want you to remember me and think of me fondly. I want your heart to be lifted up when you think of me. I was thinking of it this way. Uh, I've been taught a lot throughout my life, and I'm sure you have, is, a, is love is, a, is, is something you do. Yeah, love is something you demonstrate. Is this true? Um, love is uh, when you choose to sacrifice for others, when you choose to give to others, or when you serve others. Uh, this is what love is. And, and certainly that's an expression of love, or a significant expression of love. We have to understand what the writer is telling us here. He's telling us to feel something. When we think of God, we should... We should have an affection for him. Say, man, he's a good God. He's always dealt with me better than I should have been dealt with. He's always handled everything exactly like he said he was going to handle it. And he's saying to the people of Israel, when you think of me, I want you to think of me fondly and to have a heart that beats toward me. I want you to love me with all of your heart. With all of your soul and with all of your strength, he's saying, I don't want you to just do what I'm telling you to do. I want you to do it because you have an affection for me. If all he cared about was was rote obedience, he would have said, love the Lord your God with all of your strength. And left it at that. But what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I want you to be moved by me, he might say. God would say, I want you to see me and go, holy cow, that guy's awesome. This pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire, this appearance of God, is at the tabernacle, the place of God's presence. The tabernacle was specifically designed to communicate to the people of Israel. This is God's dwelling. This is where you find God. If you want to encounter God, you come to the tabernacle. And how do you encounter God? You must worship Him And you must worship him according to the means that he prescribes. Because God is holy, and he is just, and he is right. And in fact, God is higher than us, as it turns out. And so the people would come to the tabernacle to worship God with sacrifices. They would come with lambs, and goats, and oxen. And they would come with bread. And you could make the bread uh, with, uh, you could griddle it on the thing. You could cook it in the oven. There's lots of ways you can make the cereal offerings. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament cereal offerings, it's not Cheerios. I didn't know that for years. It's not grape nuts either. Just uh, so it's, it's, it's grain that is brought to God and is offered as an offering of bread uh, of, of saying, "God, you have sustained us, and you are the one who feeds us." And the people would encamp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle was set up, then the people would encamp all around the tabernacle, and there was a very specific way they had to encamp. The first ring around the tabernacle was the priests. They would camp all around the tabernacle, and then around those would be all the various tribes. There's 12 tribes in Israel, and if you want to go in the Old Testament, you can figure out who is where. I'm going to only point out one, and that is the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Judah was to the east, which is the direction the tabernacle's door faced. The door of the tabernacle was always set up facing east, and to the east was the tribe of Judah. Just inside the tribe of Judah were the Levites, the priests. you remember that? But specifically to the east of the tabernacle, that particular place among the tribe of Levi, or the priests, was Moses, and Aaron, the high priest, was between Judah and the entrance to the tabernacle. It's as though God was saying in the Old Testament, here's the means of entering into this tabernacle, and by no coincidence, of course, the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And the Messiah is going to be the better prophet, better than Moses, as he predicted in Deuteronomy. And as Hebrews say, the Messiah is the high priest. He leads us into the temple. So this tabernacle in the wilderness becomes the center of this community. God is with us, and there's only one way to him it's through his priest, it's through his means of worship. As it turns out, the center of this community was not the people. They didn't put their their government in the middle. They didn't put their social institutions in the middle. They didn't put their families in the middle. Who was in the middle? God was the center of their community. He was the reference point. His presence and His tabernacle, His home, was the place where they all fixed their gaze. The appearance of God in His tabernacle, His protection, His provision. You might ask this question, as as I think the people of Israel might have asked many times. God is here. We see the presence of God. We have His tabernacle. We are His people. We have the priests and the Levites. God, why the wilderness? There's better real estate. Why the wilderness, God? Why in the world are we wandering about what appears to be wandering about the wilderness? So let's move on to that. The first thing, God in the wilderness, number one, is they had the appearance of God in their presence. Secondly, God in the wilderness, they had the command of God or God's sovereign authority. Notice what would happen whenever the cloud would move. What would happen when they'd wake up in the morning and they saw the cloud was on the move? Start packing up. So the, the cloud would move, and, and they would move. And when the cloud would stay, they would stay. And when the cloud would go, they would follow the cloud. In fact, they had a very important order of, of how they went, what tribe went first and when the Ark of the Covenant would go. And uh, they followed in a, in a train. And of course, God would get together with the people of Israel and consult with them and say, now exactly where would you guys like to go today? Now Notice that's missing from the Bible. Some of you are adding it right now. In your Bible, are writing, God, consult with me on where we're going. This is God's sovereign authority. He didn't consult with anyone. He didn't check with Moses. He just got up, and he went, and they followed his reasons in his time. The cloud would get up, and it would go, and, and, no, and he wouldn't tell anyone why he was going where he was going. And he wouldn't tell anybody when they were circling back to the Red Sea, and everybody's going, I think we've been here before. I think we're going the wrong direction, God. God demonstrating God's command in the wilderness, or the command of God in the wilderness is God exercising and using uh, His reasons, His timing for where they were going, and the people followed. We have to understand something about this description of the people. It says they got up and they followed Him and they camped when He encamped and all those kind of things. Uh, they followed him but we must understand their hearts were not following him this is where the tragedy begins if you want to look with me over in psalms 78 the psalmist tells us a little bit about what was going on in their hearts we're not going to read the whole thing it's a very long psalm i'm reading i'm beginning at verse 10 of psalm 78 i am going to read to verse 25 this is a description of these Uh, the people of Israel, in following the cloud around in the wilderness. They did in fact follow Him, but we know from reading this their hearts were not with Him. This is what it says in verse 10. They, the people of Israel, did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by His law. They forgot what He had done, the wonders He had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt in the region of zone he divided the sea and led them through he made the water stand up like a wall he guided them with the cloud by day and with the light from the fire all night we just read about that he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas we're not going to read about that today excuse me but that happened on two occasions they were out of water and he he made water flow from the rocks he brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. Where was the rebellion occurring? In the wilderness. The cloud is right there, the tabernacle's right there. And the rebellion is happening, if not overtly in their actions, it's happening in their hearts. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God and they said, Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Do you remember when they said it? Oh, that we would have died in Egypt. Oh, that we were still slaves. God certainly has brought us out here to starve. Now, just an aside, this is not my notes, and that always gets me in trouble. Certainly you've prayed this prayer before, right? I mean, if you haven't, then it's coming. Lord, what in the world are you doing? Did you bring me out here just to make me miserable? I trusted you, God. I followed you, God. And now everything's falling apart. I thought it was falling apart before. Now that I'm following you, it's really falling apart. God, you have taken my life falling apart to the next level. Oh, that I was still back there not following you. I mean, certainly we've prayed. everyone's prayed this prayer. Now, we don't say it out loud generally, but I'm giving you permission to. And this is where they found themselves. We followed you. We've done all the right things. We followed the rules, and now we're out here in the wilderness, and there's no food. God, you couldn't possibly feed a million people in the middle of the desert. He struck the rock, water gushed out, streams flowed abundantly, but can He also give us bread?" Do you hear what they're saying? Oh, sure, we've seen water flow out of a rock, but David Copperfield could pull that off. Some of you guys don't know who David Copperfield is. Chris Angel can pull that off. That's for the kids out there. Sure, water came out of the rock, but could He supply meat for His people? When the Lord heard them, He was uh, furious. His fire broke out. They did not believe in God or trust in His deliverance. Yet He gave a command to the skies above, and He opened the doors of the heavens, and He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Listen, verse 25. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. In the middle of the wilderness, they followed the letter of the law. They followed the cloud when it would move. But in their hearts, they doubted the goodness of God. In their heart, they said, he brought us out here to die. In their hearts, they didn't think he had their best in mind. Their hearts were wayward despite their outward actions of following the cloud. They didn't mind following the command of God just as long as it would make more sense. one last verse here in this section Deuteronomy 8:12 I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 this is similar to our section we read in verse 6 earlier or chapter 6 earlier Deuteronomy 8:10 I have reasons for reading this hopefully we'll connect the dots with all these here in a minute God says this to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 8.10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. When you've eaten and satisfied, what do you do? Praise the Lord. Why do we pray at the beginning of the meal then? He says to do it at the end. I'll let you wrestle with that, all right. Why do you eat the dessert first? That's the other thing I'm asked. What if the rapture occurs in the middle of the meal? I want to make sure the dessert's done. Hey, this this stuff is free. Write it down. This is good advice. When you've eaten and satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful. What? Be careful. What are we being careful of? There's a danger here. Be careful you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, verse 12, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and you settle down and your herds and your flocks are large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, praise God, your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and its scorpions. In fact, it says he brought you water out of rock and he gave you manna to eat, something no one had ever heard of. In the wilderness, we have the presence of God, and we're mindful of the presence of God, and it certainly isn't easy because it's trusting God moment by moment by moment. Will there be bread tomorrow? We don't know. How do we find out if there will be bread tomorrow? Wake up tomorrow. How do we know if there will be bread the next day? We get up the next day and see what God has provided. And what God is making the argument here for us which is critically important and we must grapple with, it is better to be with God in the wilderness than to be without God in paradise. It is better to be with God in the wilderness than to be with without God where everything's taken care of. And and the danger spiritually in fact is not the wilderness. The spiritual danger is when we leave it. We find out something interesting about the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Does wilderness define God? Does the wilderness define who God is? Sure it does. Sure it does. We all believe that. I mean, it's heresy, but we believe it. You've been in the wilderness before. I mean, certainly not this wilderness. Well, maybe you have. I don't know. But so, some, uh, an occasion has occurred in your life where you say, Oh man, this is wilderness. This is dry and dusty land. And God is, I can't be here and have God be good. No God in His right mind, no God who is good, would put me here. So who defined the, who defined the nature of God in that moment in my heart? The wilderness did. I decided if there's a place in in this world, in my life, that can be defined as wilderness, then therefore, God must be a meanie. The wilderness doesn't define God. In fact, when we look at God and His covenant people, God redefines the wilderness. The wilderness then becomes a place not of want and hunger and starvation. For God and His people, the wilderness becomes the place of blessing. No one ever misses a meal, and the presence of God is just one glance over the top of my tent. The wilderness doesn't define God. God redefines what it means to be in the wilderness, and that we can actually describe, when we rest in the promises of God, the wilderness as the place of blessing. Because it's in those places, oftentimes, I have found. I have found. I have found God most real and present. I mean, certainly this has been the case for many of us, isn't it? Isn't it funny how when things get really dicey, all of a sudden God gets real real? And God redefines that wilderness and says, I want to show you something a little bit different about what I look like in the trial and the struggle and the difficulty. And his faithfulness can never be questioned. But that's difficult to do when we aren't hearing Deuteronomy 6, when our heart isn't being lifted up to this God, when our affections aren't flowing to Him, and it seems like He's just the big cheapskate in the sky. God in the wilderness, God in the wilderness number one, the appearance of God tells us that He is our protector and our provider. Number two, God in the wilderness, the, the command of God, in navigating through the wilderness, God's sovereign authority is what finally dictates what we're going to do and where we're going to go. Last one, the response to God in the wilderness. The response to God in the wilderness. I'm going to read a passage from the New Testament, actually a couple of them. I'm going to start over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's the Apostle Paul talking about Jesus. I think this is really interesting. You may or may not think it's interesting. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they, they all passed through the sea. You remember what that was all about? We've been talking about it. He says, listen, remember, our ancestors in the wilderness, they had the cloud with them, tabernacle, they all passed through the Red Sea. In fact, he says it this way, verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is the people of Israel were identified as the people of God with Moses, and specifically the Mosaic Law, or what the Ten Commandments, the, the Old Testament Law, as they passed through the sea, that, that was like a baptism for them. They're now identified, we're the people of God with Moses, who is going to bring us God's law. They were baptized into the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, the manna. They drank the same spiritual drink. For the they drank from that spiritual rock that accompanied them. And listen, this will rock your world a little bit. That rock was Christ. And so Paul is saying here, listen... They had the food that God had provided them. They had the water that God had provided them. And the intention here was to tell them, God is one who provides for you. And specifically, he will provide one who finally, completely provides for you. In fact, Jesus developed it further in John chapter 4 when he was talking to the woman at the well. And what did he tell her? I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. He's been giving that water for a long, long time. Verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So God provided for the redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt. He provided for their baptism that they might be identified with God uh, through the Mosaic Law, and He provided for their food and their drink. He saved them from Egypt, baptized them in the Red Sea, and provided the manna and the water for them to drink, and they failed epically have you read the old testament it does not have a happy ending they failed start to finish they started failing before they crossed the red sea they took failure to the next level post red sea and then once they got to the promised land they took it up a notch and that's where the old testament ends God, God redeems them from slavery. God baptizes them into the law. And God provides for their every need, both spiritual and physical. And they disobey, and they disobey, and they disobey. It's almost like we're not really designed that well in our brokenness to endure the wilderness. Just before we move on to another point. I think about the wilderness you've been in or the one you're in today. You ever feel like the people of Israel in that way? Hey. I mean, don't you feel like sometimes when things get really dicey? Okay, now my faith is really going to grow, and I'm going to get better and better and better, and then it doesn't. So, you know, you can, you can say it like this way, and I, I mean this facetiously, except that it's too true. Uh, we're not very good at following God when he gives us everything we want. And it gets worse when he takes it all away. So what are we going to do? We're lousy at going through the wilderness because if you read the Old Testament and you make fun of the Israelites, I'd be really careful with that one, okay? Because every time I read it, it sounds too much like me. That's what's irritating about it. So we're really bad at going through the wilderness. We're really bad at having everything we ever needed. What are we going to do? Matthew 4. I think this is so cool. Whether or not you agree with me, well, you can disagree with me. You have every right to be wrong. Matthew chapter 4, actually Matthew chapter 4, four begins with the ma- end of chapter 3. It's just one of these awful things. There shouldn't be a chapter division here because these are intended to go one from one to the other. Matthew is painting a picture here and putting a big giant 4 in your Bible right there ruins the story. I feel very strongly about this. Verse 17 of the end of Matthew chapter 3, A voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. What just happened? Jesus got baptized. By who? John the Baptist. And you found yourself in a Baptist church. That works out. Okay. (laughs) Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. What happens next? Verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. He was tempted by the devil. After fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. Why did Israel have to wander to the wilderness forty days and forty or forty years? Do you remember? It's in the book of Numbers. You can look it up. It's because the spies spied out the land for forty days, and he said, "You get a year for each day they wandered around in the goodness of my land and turned it away." Now, Jesus is going out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. How much manna does he get to eat? Zilcho. And he was hungry. And the tempter came up to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what did he quote? we have already read it. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, Israel, you'll never get this right. But who can get it right? Jesus devil took him up to the holy city, and he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus said this, Deuteronomy 6, it's written, buddy, don't put the Lord your God to the test. The devil took him up to a high mountain and said, if you will worship me, if you will bow down and worship me, you can have everything. A silly offer. He already owns it. Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I want you to understand something about this, and, and this is really, really important. There's two things here I want to say, and there's 17 things I want to say. I'm going to keep it to two, okay? I'm going to get in trouble, so I may as well just get in trouble. A lot of times we, we talk through this passage how do we resist the devil? What's the answer? We quote scripture at him. And, you know, that's, I'm totally down with that. So I don't want you to hear me saying I'm, I'm okay with that. But there's something more important happening here. What is it? We're lousy at resisting the devil, and so Jesus says, I got it for you guys. You're lousy in the wilderness, so I'll do it. You're lousy when you're hungry, so I'll do it. Listen, here's the thing. God takes the people of Israel, and He through the Red Sea and through the wilderness, he says, I want you to identify with me as your God, and what do they do with that? They thumb their nose at him, and I'm being polite there. So Jesus says, you know what, I think getting people to identify with me is not the right way to go. So what does he do? He comes down and gets baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist. What is the baptism of John the Baptist? It's a sinner's repentance baptism. That wasn't the microphone, that was the Spirit of the Lord hitting you right there. (laughs) John the Baptist was baptizing repentant sinners. When Jesus was baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist, he says, I'm with the sinners. They refuse to be identified with me, so I will identify with them. And now that I am them, I'm going to go into the wilderness and do what you will never be able to do. I will stay true from day one to day 40, home run, out of the park, drops the bat, walks off. That was a baseball analogy. Jesus was baptized to identify with us. He walks in the wilderness to identify with us. And then he raises from the dead and says, let's hang out. Come with me. In fact, he says this in Matthew 4, 19. He walked up to Simon, called Peter, his brother Andrew. They were fishing, and he said, come follow me. I'm going to send you out to fish for people. We're not qualified. Don't worry about it. Took care of that. We're pretty sinful, Jesus. Yep, I'm going to pay for that too, so you're square. Uh, Jesus, we're not priests. I'll be the priest. Don't worry about it. I'm going to make you a priest. We don't have any authority. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I mean, what's the excuse here for Peter? Jesus says, I am all of the things you're not so that you can do what I'm calling you. Just follow me. Uh, just one one or two more verses, and you know that's a lie. Hebrews 4, 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter his rest... And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, Hebrews 4, 7, God set a certain day, calling it today, and He, he, he spoke of it a long time ago through David, and He said, Today, if you hear your vo- hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for God's people. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to do what: work our, our nails to the bo- our fingers to the bone to make sure God likes us. No, make every effort to do what: enter His rest. You make every effort to enter His rest and say, "Jesus walked through the wilderness for me. I don't have to be perfect here." Jesus was baptized for me as a sinner so I can be in him a holy, righteous son of God. Make every effort to enter his rest. Jesus is, is calling us to the same affection that God was calling the people of Israel to. He's saying, I want you to be so profoundly impacted by this Jesus. He said, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. That your heart is lifted up to him. He said, Jesus, where are you going? Because I don't want to be anywhere else. The Apostle John says it this way in John chapter 15. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you what? Friends. How could he possibly do that? Remember the tabernacle with 17 rings of Jewish people? You couldn't get into it. You had to be, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. You had to be Moses. You had to be an Israelite. What, and Jesus says, "No, no, no come on in. Doors open. We're friends. I'm not calling you to not know what I'm up to. I'm calling you into my work that I'm already already doing. A couple of examples of this, and I'm sorry to keep you flipping in your Bibles. Wait, never. Mind. I'm not sorry at all. Acts chapter two. This is this, and then we're going to close with this." Acts chapter 2, you're familiar with it. When the day of Pentecost came, Jesus has risen from the dead, Jesus has ascended to heaven, and He had told the disciples to hang out in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. And so they're hanging out, and it says this is Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. What do we discover here? The work of Christ. He walked through the wilderness. He walked through the Red Sea for us. He walked into uh, the presence of God and sacrificed His own life for us. He was raised from the dead to defeat our death. And what do we discover here? Remember how we said, wouldn't it be cool if we came down here to church and there was a column of fire and a column of smoke? As it turns out, there is. As it turns out, the tabernacling, I just made tabernacle into a verb, that's amazing. The tabernacling of the Holy Spirit now is in all believers. The residency of God himself, the presence of God himself is in the believer. When we trust Christ for forgiveness, we don't now then have to go on some epic adventure to find out where God is. The fire resides in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We now have the presence of God with us. He's right in our hearts. He's right in our lives. He's always with us. He never leaves, uh, whether you like that or not. He never goes on vacation. He never takes a break. The tabernacle of the Lord is right among us. We have the presence of God himself. The Spirit is what moves us and compels us to do the things of God... And, of course, the Spirit lets us know when we're walking in ways we shouldn't be. The Apostle Paul obeyed the Spirit, and he followed the Spirit, sometimes better than others. Paul admitted to his own brokenness. In Acts 16, the Apostle Paul told of a story where he was trying to get to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go. So he wasn't allowed to go there. On another occasion, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. He says in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian believers, he says, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, Then one chapter later, the Holy Spirit tells Paul, through a prophet named Agabus, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. And all of this, what was Paul's problem? He had had the Spirit. He had the presence of God. So for him, everything was dialed in. God in the wilderness. The appearance of God. He's powerful, and he's our protector, and we have him in in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is as much in us as he was in the tabernacle in the wilderness. We have the sovereign authority of God in our lives. God will show us where he wants to go, sometimes more clearly than others. I guarantee you where he's going, you won't be able to predict it, nor will it be expected. Most likely, it wouldn't be your first choice. Finally, we can respond to God in faith and dependence as the people of Israel were called to do through the manna and the water, to say, tomorrow's taken care of because we have the presence of God. We have the ability in our wilderness, in the the trials that God gives us, to say, no, today is handled. Tomorrow is handled. What's the worst that could happen to a believer? You die. If I read my Bible right, that's not a bad deal. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I would prefer to go home, but as long as God would have me stay here, I'll hang out. He's in charge, not me. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to a believer is they go to heaven forever. A couple of things, but differences between Israel and the Apostle Paul when it comes to the presence of God, and then we'll close with this. All Israel saw was the wilderness. They had the tabernacle in the middle of their encampment with a giant column of smoke and fire, and all they could see was the wilderness. The Apostle Paul, for most of his life serving the Lord, was in nothing but wilderness, and all he could see was God. His heart was lifted up by the Spirit to this God in a prison cell to this God when he was fighting wild animals in Ephesus. Paul trusted the Lord. He followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. He was obedient to God's call to make disciples. And we can tell by reading the books that the the Apostle Paul has written that the wilderness was not as big of an issue for him as it was for the people of Israel. And the reason is not because Paul was good at handling the wilderness. What was it for Paul? He knew Jesus had already handled the wilderness for him. Paul wasn't kidding. In Romans chapter 8, when he said, There is therefore now no condemnation. If Paul was good at handling the difficult stuff in life, he wouldn't write a verse like that. He was writing a verse like that because he was like the rest of us, weak and frail and having to rest on the grace of Christ day in and day out. Jesus was baptized to identify with, with us Jesus walked through the wilderness because he knew we're pretty lousy at it. And Jesus was raised from the dead because he knows we're not very good at overcoming death. Finally, Jesus gives us freedom from sin. And Jesus gives us freedom from our need to be God. God in the wilderness. Here's what I want you to uh, take away from this, if, you, if, you, uh, if you'd like to, if you wouldn't like to, that's your business. Um, I don't necessarily want you to get stronger. We have a phrase in my house, and I shouldn't say this, you're gonna think I'm a bad parent. You already think that. When kids have to do something they don't wanna do, little phrase here, kind of helps. Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> gotta sometimes, you gotta do stuff you don't wanna do. That's called being alive. It gets worse the older you get, right? Am I right? I mean, you're, oh my, lands, they have no idea. So we think, well then the lesson is, I mean, we gotta walk through the wilderness and just be a wilderness ninja. Just, you know, I can handle it. I don't get disappointed. Now I skip around with a giant smile on my face. That's not what we learn here. What we learn here is Jesus walked through the wilderness. It's done. You don't have to be good at it. You don't have to hit it out of the park. In fact, your hitting out of the park is pretty lousy compared to him hitting it out of the park. His ball actually goes out of the park. Yours dribbles past home plate a little bit. You can be lousy at being in the wilderness. It's not so much about how good you are. The question is, who are you going to depend on? This is really, really important for us to understand because at the end of the day, if we can grapple with this truth and rely on this truth that Jesus paid it all, not just our conversion, but also the rest of our life, and it it can generate in us a love that says, what, you're saying I don't have to be perfect? That he covered it? Your heart should be lifted up to him, and you should be moved to say, but this is too much. I should have to pay you back for the rest of my life for my salvation. I mean, shouldn't we? Should we have to spend the rest of our life paying him back? And that's not what he calls us to. He calls us for the rest of our life to do what the author of Hebrews did. Make every effort to enter his rest. Make every effort to understand the extent of his sacrifice to us that we can say he took care of it. I can be lousy at suffering. I can have a bad attitude and pray that he might change it, but at the end of the day, that's not where my righteousness is coming from. My righteousness is coming from him, not myself. We don't gain any spiritual points with God by receiving salvation and then spending the rest of our life apologizing for it. We gain a relationship with God when we receive his salvation and spend the rest of our life doing what? Resting. There is no condemnation. He, he walked through the wilderness perfectly for you so you don't have to. It's only then that we can discover the wilderness doesn't define God, but God redefines it. That he can even be good during those difficult times.